Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real world data. Welcome to this special episode of CODA's podcast. My name is Mandy Kelly, and I will be the host today. I'm delighted to be here with Carla Figali and Sesh Srinivasan from Deloitte, as well as my CODA colleague, Laura Fernandez. Today, we're going to talk about a new blog series that we have with Deloitte and CODA on the Women in Health Innovation Platform that digs into use cases in real-world data within oncology. Carla, Sesh, and Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Good to be here. Yes, so nice to be here. Carla, would you like to start by introducing yourself? Sure. Yeah. My name is Carla Figali. I'm a senior manager within our Converge Health by Deloitte practice. I specialize in helping organizations utilize rural data. I basically worked with pretty much every top pharma to build out their capabilities from organizational structures to partnerships to access data to technology and actually enabling that technology as well. So really doing that end-to-end and everything around rural data. So thank you. Thanks for having us today. So say Shinivasan, I'm with Deloitte and specialize in data and analytics space. So a little bit about myself, um, data science background, worked extensively with real world data, clinical trials data, genomics data. So within Deloitte, part of a group called Converge Health, where we build products specifically for life sciences and pharma and healthcare space as well. I lead building products related to data analytics space. Pharma can come in and query vast amounts of data so they can get answers, everything from clinical trial planning all through the commercialization. So yeah, I have over a decade of experience working with various players like pharma companies, government organizations, nonprofit research groups as well. So very happy to be part of the conversation and dialogue here. Hi, my name is Laura Fernandez. I'm the Senior Statistical Director here at Cota. I have a biostats background, got a PhD in biostatistics from University of Michigan. I worked at the FDA prior to being here at Cota. So lots of regulatory experience in drug approvals and clinical trial designs, especially in oncology hematology. I decided to come to work at Cota because there's so much of interest in real-world data, and that's what we're going to speak today about how real-world data intersects with the clinical trials and oncology therapies, bringing therapies faster to the market, you know, for patients most in need. So happy to be here. Great to have everyone here. And I think that's the perfect segue right into our first question here around, we're generating massive amounts of data within the industry, and it's being collected all throughout healthcare, some of it specifically for research purposes and other just through routine clinical practice, business practices. And we're really trying to deal with how do we make sense of all of this data? When is the appropriate time to use one source versus the other? And particularly thinking about real world data versus randomized control trial data. So how can we use these different sources in complementary ways? And so, Carla, how do we make sense of this and how do we pull all of these puzzle pieces together in order to really benefit patients and improve care, which is the overall goal of what we're working toward? Yeah, sure, Mindy. There's there's significant amount of opportunity here in the use of verbal data with clinical trial data as well. When clinical trials are actually being stood up and operated, the data is being defined and pulled for very specific intended purposes. And so it's really important to understand the collection generation of that data and its intended use. 
So when you're running a clinical trial, that's the data that the experts are looking at. That's how they're seeing performance. They're not necessarily always bringing in and looking at outside perspectives. So when you actually have that patient in the room and you're collecting that information, you're getting a point in time data. But combining that data with real world data gives you a holistic picture of that actual patient and helps you understand other factors that could potentially be influencing the outcome of that patient's health and how they're going to perform in that overall trial. And so combining that with real world data really, like I said, gives you that 360 view and gives you that different perspective because in the room, you know, as you're discussing with this patient that's on a trial, they're giving you maybe, you know, 50% of the story, but did they not sleep well the night before? Did they exercise? Are they eating, you know, poorly in some cases? And really taking some of that patient reported outcome data in combination with some of their history data and what they, how they've been seen with in the past with like medical professionals, you can really just combine that and utilize that much more effectively. But then even taking that a step further, like the use of rural data, frankly, and I'm, I will get into a lot of detail, there's so much value from early research and development through to commercialization and combining that with the primary use of clinical data plus secondary use of clinical data is truly transforming how we can bring drugs to market better, faster, and even cheaper to help really enable and empower patients and improve health performance. That's great. And throughout that, there's so many, we make references to so many different kinds of data. And so Sesh, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what are the different kinds of real world data and, you know, how does that compare to RCT data as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think very exciting conversation, right? So because we live in an exciting time right now, we have more data than ever, and we have the tools with the help from technology, right? It's so advanced. We have the means to analyze that aspect, right? So on one end of the spectrum, and I think Carla touched on quite a bit of this, we have RCTs, right, which are randomized clinical trials. And I think everybody is more familiar with that with COVID in the last two years. You ask anybody, they know what RCTs are. It's basically researchers studying a particular question related to a drug or vaccine, studying the e efficacy of that in a very tightly controlled manner, right? So your population are selective. So there are clear clinical guidelines, right? That is what we have on one end. On the other end, we have the world of RWD, which is real world data, right? Everything related to, um, you know, how care is delivered, you know, medication usage. So there's a wide variety over there and everything that's outside of your clinical trial setting, right? That's how FDA defines it as well. And we're going to talk about that a bit more, right? When let's talk about this, this piece, the real world data piece, because that's super exciting, right? Even there, think of data that are passively collected, uh, you know, through which how care is delivered, like your administrative claims data, your electronic health record, and data that are more deliberately and intentionally collected, like your observational studies, retrospective, prospective, right? All of that. And then I like to think of another type, which is the novel data type, right? And that's where things get really interesting, like your multi-omics data, like your genomics, proteomics, right? and your device data, something as simple as your iPhone, all the way through to very complex devices like your pacemakers and so on, right? And then comes imaging data, which is where we talk about your MRI, like your scans, right? And we can keep going. There's also most important one, SDOH, social determinants of health data, which is super important right now, especially with the conversation of diversity and things like that, right? As focus, as more around health equity. 
Now, the most important piece is how can we combine all of this together? There are obviously many challenges, which we are going to discuss. We're addressing some of it in our blogs, and we're going to address it here as well. But I don't know if you can sense my excitement, but it's like more data than ever. So we have to be very intentional and thoughtful about combining all of this and putting it all to good use, which is, you know, addressing and improving patient outcomes, right? And long-winded answer, but there's so much of data available right now. Thank you for that. And yeah, it is a very exciting field. And it's also when we turn it back over to folks who are developing drugs, the question then comes up of, well, what kinds of questions can we answer with real-world data? And there's really a wide, a wide range of those questions. And we can use real-world data as well as clinical data collected through these randomized clinical trials um, all throughout the drug development lifecycle. And I think one of the important things to remember is that real-world data is answering a different question than a clinical trial because we're looking at real-world endpoints. And so we are, there are fundamentally different questions, but both are important there to understand in a clinical trial setting, very controlled, how does a drug perform? What does the safety and efficacy look like? And then also to look at that drug out in the real world, in real patients, in a less controlled setting, what does that look like? So some of the questions we can think about there that real world data can support is efficacy, safety. What does patient adherence look like? Are there gaps in care that we can address with real world data? We can look at groups that were maybe excluded from clinical trials and observe how are treatments performing among those patients as well. So there's there's so much that we can explore within this space. And so, yeah, I too am excited <laughs> about the possibilities that we're seeing. And so, Laura, I want to turn it over to you for some of this regulatory perspective. And, you know, real world data, it's this hot new topic. And so is it, do you feel like it's here to stay? And also thinking again with this regulatory perspective, what are some of the shortcomings of clinical trials and can real world data help to address those gaps? Yes. So yes, from a regulatory point of view, real world data is here to stay. And I say that because as uh, you know, Shesh mentioned earlier, with COVID, we have seen so much of real world data being used, you know, in so many of our vaccine approvals and even in uh, determining what is the right form of care, you know, it was hard to do a randomized clinical trial to see if some of the therapies that were proposed during, you know, the height of the pandemic, there were so many uh, therapies that were being tested, but they were not done in a randomized clinical trial. Oftentimes, it was data that was coming, that was collected in individual hospitals, you know. Uh, you put those case report forms together and it was observational data that guided our decisions in policy making and in like choosing the right treatments. So, so yes, I think real-world data, there's a, a huge spotlight on it now. And the pandemic also uh, made us realize that it is also difficult to collect information in this controlled fashion. And so we're thinking of other ways to expand how clinical trials are conducted. Decentralized clinical trials is another thing that's coming up now of how to, how to go to where the patient is instead of asking the patient to come to these clinical trial centers. Which leads me to my point is when clinical trials are conducted, there is this whole selection bias of which kind of patients participate in clinical trials. The FDA has been uh, mindful about this bias that oftentimes underrepresented patient populations are not present in clinical trials. And when the drug is approved, if a patient wants to know what can I expect when I take this drug, sometimes you do not have a patient like you who's been studied in a clinical trial. 
when I was at the FDA, I was part of this drug trial snapshot. It's this working group, uh, you know, to understand the patient demographics that are studied in clinical trials. And oftentimes we saw there were patients of close to less than a percent, you know, of older patients or patients uh, in certain race or uh, ethnicity categories. So, so there's been an effort to, to expand how clinical trials are conducted. And that is where I feel uh, real world data will definitely come uh, in the, into this picture, you know, to, to fill in our gaps of uh, information collecting and understanding how the drug actually works. Building on top of what Laura's saying here, you know, it takes $2.6 billion to bring a drug to market. And in oncology alone, there's twice as many revisions to the clinical protocol than there are in other therapeutic areas, which that, that actually results in about 50 to 70% higher cost to run that clinical trial than another therapeutic area. And so using rural data to help inform trial design and understand where those patients are, what diversity is represented in that patient population of interest, and then go and determine your recruitment strategy or maybe even change from recruiting to actually attracting patients to participate in trials because they're understanding, you know, a different value and they're understanding how, how their data is going to be used, how, you know, they're going to get access to medications they may not have otherwise been able to. Thus improving how fast we can actually bring drugs to market and testing them on diverse populations to understand the implications of the overall patient population. So there's a ton of value and that's just one or a few examples in just the clinical space, but adding on, yeah. So, you know, that's a good point, Carla, talking about cost of a clinical trial, you know, and there are so many reasons why the cost of a clinical trial can go up, you know. One of the reasons is the time it takes to enroll patients into a clinical trial. We've often seen like very good clinical trial protocols that have this very specific objective to answer this question. And they have this very nicely designed sample size calculation. You want to have, say, 200 patients on each arm. And it takes years to recruit patients on this trial. You know, in the meantime, you're like spending so much of money. And sometimes if it's a drug that is really effective, you are prolonging the time it takes the drug to come to the market. We are delaying the time to get effective drugs to the market. Again, as to the cost, the other thing I wanted to say was oftentimes the reason why it takes longer also to complete a trial is because patients don't want to be randomized to this control arm, right? Patients feel like I can get the standard of care or the control arm from it's already approved and it's in the market. I don't need to participate in a clinical trial to get this standard of care, right? They want the new, the exciting or the untested investigational drug, which in case of cancer might be the one that, you know, because they've already tested other drugs and this might be the one that, you know, is the hopeful one for them. So, so patients, especially in cancer, want to try the new investigational therapy. And so it leads to clinical trials that actually, even though well-designed, might then lack the ability to answer this question because of lack of power, patients drop out. As soon as the oncology trials are also open label. And so as soon as patients realize that they've been assigned to the control arm, they just show up for their first appointment and then they, you know, drop out from the trial. So you have this whole dropout issue, which leads to another selection bias of who is added yeah. in these clinical trials. Yeah, I'm going to quickly jump in as well because this is too exciting. <laughs> uh, so we're talking, Lara, you brought up dropout, which is a big deal, right? Just to put it into perspective, half the time goes in clinical trials, like, you know, recruiting them, running them, 
taking it to completion, right? Half the time that you are you're taking a drug to market goes in, into this, right? Operationalizing as well. And retention is a huge deal in that, right? And and it's it's more the fact that there's a lot of non-medical reason that goes into it, right? Is it is it because of the environment that they live in? Is it because it's hard for them to get to the trial site? There are so many non-medical socioeconomic reasons that go into it, which is why the increased spotlight on marrying the SDOH data, the, the social determinants of health data, along with medical data, right? Because you almost have like these two pieces together, they're controlling the overall process. But I think today we're looking at it kind of separately. And again, there are several challenges. I'm not saying it's super easy to marry them together. But that's one of the things that we think about at Converge Health, right? As people who are creating products for Life Sciences Pharma and several other players as well, we think about how can we bring all of this data in a single platform? And, and that's kind of our guiding principle as well within Converge Health Minor, right? Can you bring all of this data together so researchers can analyze it and kind of look at it on, on the same, same ground, right? Because that can help you kind of pull insights across across these data sets and, and to answer everything we just talked about, recruiting the right patient group, diversity, maintaining them and taking it to completion, right? Just wanted to add that, that in there. Yeah, absolutely. And so with the potential that real world data has within this space, Laura, what do you think are some of the top use cases and value adds that real world data can have within the regulatory setting? Some of the ways that we have seen uh, real-world data, like I mentioned, right, during uh, this whole pandemic, we've seen how real-world data has informed which kind of therapy supportive care should be used or not, right? So so definitely, that's an excellent uh, use of real-world data that everybody is aware of, you know. But then there are, uh, when you look at other uh, use case examples, which the FDA has uh, actually used real-world data in a regulatory approval, what we have to understand is we have this concept of a new molecular entity. So the first time a drug is approved for its first indication, the FDA insists on having a clinical trial. It's either randomized or a single arm trial. But you need a clinical trial data to establish its first indication. And so then subsequent applications are supplemental applications and other indications. That's where uh, the FDA is open using uh, real-world data for supplemental approvals. And so an excellent example of this is ProGraph. The FDA has spoken about this example as a very good use case example of using real-world data. So ProGraph was initially approved for liver cancer transplants. And so what the company then saw is that there's been a lot of uh, use of this drug in also lung cancer transplants. And so what they did is they put together a registry and collected all this data on how PROGRAF worked in the case of lung cancer transplants. And they submitted that as an external control. You know, this is all external control data and compared it to the standard of care. And they said that, yeah. Based on this registry data, the FDA agreed that there was evidence of safety and effectiveness that this drug worked in this patient population. So the data source that was used in this particular instance was coming from a registry database. But like Carla mentioned, it could have been electronic health records or any other equivalent data source that would have been able to answer this question. That's a great example. And, you know, hopefully we'll start to see more of those examples come out within the industry. So, Sesh, earlier on, you mentioned some of the challenges in working with these data sources together. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on some of those challenges that you've seen in working with 
RCT data with real world data or in trying to combine multiple real world data sources as well to answer. Yeah, um, absolutely. I may run out of time talking about this, so <laughs> I will try my best to keep it in size. I, again, that's why I think we're writing these blogs as well, right? Just as yep. a way for us to put all our thoughts in one go and in our second and third blogs, first one is already out, which talks about the different data types. The second and third is actually going to go into a lot of the details around challenges and how you can overcome, how you can prepare yourself. With that caveat, I'm going to try and give a concise answer, right? So it is very challenging because think about it, the purpose and the intent with which it was collected. Right there, <laughs> it's it's completely different purpose, right? Like we said, RCTs, you know, very, very tight controlled environment. There's RWD, you're passively collecting it. You don't have control over the source, you know, how it gets transformed. So there's a lot of things going on there, which all of which will, will result in this thing called as bias, right? And you have to appropriately identify that and correct for it, right? So with that in mind, again, let's talk about three or four things that are the top challenges, right? The very first one, and again, all of this depends on also the question that you are asking, right? If it's more of an exploratory question, you don't have to go all the way through, through to the far end. But if it's more of, you know, a regulatory submission or something with a bit more rigor into it, then you have to, you know, check off all these boxes, right? And that's where the concept of fit for purpose data, FFP, comes in, right? Some of the things to to pay attention to note, the very first one is relevance, right? Um, do you have the right patient population and the right variables that you're looking for? Especially, let's take COVID example, right? With COVID, one of the things that a researcher is trying to study is, you know, hospitalization as an outcome, right? So if you are going after a real-world data set, is that even available in the data or not, right? So looking for that. And next thing, quickly, I like to talk about is reliability, right? It's very important, like how accurate it is, how complete it is. What is the provenance, right? What is the source? Where did it start? What transformation has it gone through? Can the researcher look at all of that to make that informed decision, right? So that's number two. The third thing is, again, bias, right? Does it involve a diverse set of patient population? Is it representative? And, you know, what are the confounding factors? Can you identify it? Can you correct for it, right? These are some of the things. And, and again, right, if you think of it at a large formal level, having all of this information even available, right, because there are, again, data vendors that specialize in these things. The data vendors would give you data dictionary and documentation, but having that ready at your disposal, it's what's very challenging, again, Another thing, like as groups involved in developing these platforms, we're always thinking about it. How can we make it easier for researchers coming in to check like, you know, these three things or four things or how many of it, right? Is it reliable? Is it uh, free of bias, right? Is it relevant? So they can ultimately get to that, you know, that coveted fit for purpose data. And again, there's, there's a lot more information in our blogs to come, but hopefully I can at least give you some, some sort of an idea. So I wanted to jump in and say, you know, what uh, Shesh was mentioning, you know, fit for purpose, whether the data is relevant, the data source is relevant, and whether it has completeness, you know, both of these issues are very key. That example that I gave about ProGraph, you know, applying it to that example, it checked off those boxes. The data source was relevant because it had information to fulfill this question that we were trying to answer. It is, does this drug work in lung transplant patients, right? And so the data had the information. 
Was it complete? Yes, because we knew what the baseline uh, features were of the patients. We knew what happened to them after they got the transplant, what was their outcome. So those patients were followed. And so in choosing the data source to answer your question, right? It might not always be that one data source is able to answer all your questions. And so you then have to choose the appropriate data source for your question or your hypothesis. And it doesn't have to be that real-world data always have to be used for an external control arm because that is that would be the pinnacle of using real-world data in a proper clinical trial, right? But there are other ways where real-world data can be used to supplement what a clinical trial cannot answer. And so there are other avenues where real-world data can come into play, you know, to, to answer these questions that we do not have information on. No, very well put, Laura. I think you now we we say exploratory, right? Which is kind of the other end of the spectrum, right? You have regulatory of exploratory on one end, but even that by itself is so important, right? And real world data provides so much value there. I think, yeah. <laughs> it's I'm, so funny, Carla. You said exploratory, and my regulatory uh, hat goes up, you know. So. <laughs> So in regulatory language, exploratory is anything that is not pre-specified, you know, so anything that is like you have your pre-specified primary endpoint, you have your secondary endpoint and your third endpoint, you know, and so everything that you know beyond that, you know, that is without like what we say, alpha control, we would be like, oh, it's exploratory hypothesis generating. <laughs> and so, and so what I want to say is with real world data, it doesn't have to be exploratory, you know. If you, if you go through this process of pre-specifying what is your patient population going to be and how you're going to analyze your patient population and how you're going to, you know, account for these biases, confounding biases, if you pre-specify all these points upfront, yes, real-world data can provide the same degree of inference-making capability, you know? We do not have to just put it on the exploratory table and be like, no, you're not at the same level. Yeah, it's a great point to be made. And so with all of this discussion, Carla, I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the current trends that we're seeing within the industry of use of real world data in the regulatory setting and then also outside of it as well. Sure. So I, I spoke about some of it before and how it's being used into clinical trials, but I mean, frankly, it's, it's data driven trial design. Like that's the buzzword term here. And so it's how are you using data to actually inform the clinical trial? How are you designing it? How are you going to set it up? How like. How are you determining certain endpoints, et cetera, and using that data to really inform everything around that clinical trial. And you're also seeing around patient recruitment. And so actually looking at patient recruitment completely differently. So as I was saying, attract instead of recruit patients. And how can you use with the right limitations and appropriate like, you know, governance put in place, but how could you potentially use like certain marketing techniques, so like omni-channel that's traditionally used for marketing purposes to help identify and attract and make sure that you're speaking to those potential patients that you'd recruit into trials in different channels that are most impactful and accessible to them and providing them content that would be most relevant to those populations, especially with the push on diversity and understanding that people have different levels of understanding medical literacy and understanding what these trials actually mean around it. And then even, you know, going beyond that, the use of AI ML, like what is the likelihood of a patient actually dropping out of that trial? Do you need to think about recruiting more patients with the understanding that you're going to have dropout? Or could you potentially predict when that dropout could occur that are there interventions that you could do to help retain them? You know, 
Laura's talking about trial recruitment, like 15% of trials never get off the ground because they're not able to meet their recruitment targets. So that's pretty significant. And then getting into some of the more fun things, it's like, you know, decentralized trials. And so that we're seeing more and more often, especially COVID accelerated a lot of that. You know, the year before COVID, we were actually speaking at a conference and highlighted, we thought it would be about five years out. And then COVID hit and that accelerated that timeline pretty significantly, which is great. And then with those decentralized trials, they're coming in areas that you would maybe not anticipate. So, um, you know, CBS has announced that they're going to operate that running decentralized trials or Walmart has announced that, or there's some major grocery stores that are under consideration right now. Do they do this as well? And so it's really giving access to, to trials that would otherwise be very difficult for many, you know, different populations to gain access to and putting it right in the communities in which they live. And. Yeah. So, I mean, there's tremendous, there's the use of companion tools to understand the patient reported outcomes. I mean, frankly, we could go on forever, but it's, it's a really exciting turn to be in this space and using all of the different technologies, capabilities, and the world's comfort now of being able to do things more virtually. You know, that's a very nice point, Carla, you know, because many times we don't realize the ask that we make of patients, you know, when they participate in a clinical trial. Oftentimes, for some patients who are remotely located, it's sometimes a decision of do I pay, you know, $5 for this gallon of gas to drive two hours each way, you know, to do my whatever monthly visit and spend another two hours to do the whole procedure. Sometimes those are the kinds of decisions that those patients grapple with. And I feel like sometimes we do not pay as much attention. To, to this patient resource. And then we randomize them to, to the standard of care or the control of, and then they're like stuck participating in a trial that they, in some sense, did not want to, right? Because they wanted, they participated in a trial to get the new therapy. So one of the other solutions also is this concept of master protocol, talking about trial efficiency. Do you know what could be a hindrance as to why we do not see more of master protocols uh, based on, you know, your... Uh, experience with like interacting with so many pharma companies why don't we see as much of acceptance for master protocols maybe i don't want to say but a lot of it comes down to the different groups and organizations that are setting up those trials and their ways you know wanting to set in some of the traditional ways in which they've stood up those trials and so that's where some of the challenges around consensus but frankly i agree with you it would accelerate timelines tremendously if organizations were willing to adopt those master umbrella protocols as many of them call as well yes right because in a nutshell a master protocol is you have a single control arm and multiple investigational arms so the probability of a patient getting a new investigational therapy is much higher right and you don't keep assigning patients to the same control arm in different clinical trials so your efficiency goes up in terms of using your patient resource and also in terms of time to answer the question. So another avenue besides using real-world data would be the use of master protocols. I'm all about efficiency. And it's competition for the same patient population, yes. right? You know, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like 10,000 oncology trials alone, you know, happening. And so you're going after very similar patients. So think about it more efficiently. Yes. And it's a single yeah. protocol, right? You just make an amendment, you add another new therapy, uh, your new investigational arm, and you don't have to like get a IRB approval for a new protocol every time you're like designing your trial. And so I think the question comes up then of, 
for folks who are developing these drugs and pharma companies, how do we stay ahead of this? And how do we stay on top of all of the ever-changing standards and new data sources that are coming out and new methods? And so I think technology is a major piece here for pharma companies to take part in, but also thinking about the data side of side of things. Um, you know, there's different ways that we can use technology to make sure that the data provenance and governance is maintained, that there's always this train back to where did the data come from so we can really understand exactly why the data was collected, how it's been transformed, if it's been transformed, why, so that we can make sure that we're answering the, the question with all of that context in mind. And then platforms, once we get to the analysis portion, we're analyzing huge sources of data, often having to deal with linking, different patient populations. And so having those platforms to really standardize those analytics and to help again with making sure we have the complete audit trail of everything that's been done from the analytics and then also on the data side of things. I think that's a major piece in making sure that we're staying on top of everything that we're trying to manage in those, those massive data sets. And then another piece of this is also the guidance from the FDA that's coming out around real world data and RWE um, and how it can be used in that context. So Laura, I'm curious if you can provide some some insight there around the FDA guidance and all of the the different pieces that have come out. Yes, yes. You know, the 21st Century Cures Act was something that, you know, spearheaded this whole effort where Congress actually mandated, like, you know, look out for alternative sources of data to answer these clinical uh, research questions that we require randomized clinical trials to answer. And so that gave rise to this whole effort of, you know, or this acceptance for real-world data from on the part of the FDA. And uh, one of the requirements from that uh, Cures Act was FDA was to provide like this framework and uh, guidance documents to help pharma companies and other data companies to, to figure out how to, you know, collect and submit this data to the FDA. And so in uh, fall of last year, 2021, there were four different guidances, you know, that spoke about how EHR data should be collected or even registry data and what, what the FDA looks for. And Shesh alluded to this earlier, you know, a relevance of the data source. They went into great details to explain what does it mean to have a relevant data source? What does it mean to have a complete data source? And what does it mean to have a validated data source? You know, so we have that guidance. What is lacking now? And the FDA did say that they're going to provide additional guidance on what kind of methods to apply, analytical methods to apply to control for different kinds of biases that creep in when we use this kind of data. So earlier I mentioned that clinical trials also have certain biases and we take care of those biases, you know, in a clinical trial by having different safeguard measures in place. So we need to have similar safeguards in place for using real world data. There's no free lunch in some sense, right? So <laughs> even in the case of real world data, what are the kinds of measures we need to put in place? How to avoid selection bias, how to avoid temporal bias how to take care of this whole missingness bias that might creep in if you do not have complete data. So, so those are the kinds of things that are going to be coming uh, in the forthcoming. Uh, I think that we're expecting two different guidances from the FDA and those, uh, how to handle those biases is going to be expanded upon in those guidance documents. Yeah. What well, one thing um, quickly, I think Laura, again, great point. So I think, very important thing to do upfront is to define your research question very well and also your analysis plan. So you 
just don't start tweaking along the way, cherry picking, right? All like big, big red lines and no-nos, right? So I think where you talked about, right? Like that auditability as well, like in terms of the data collection, cleanup, but also the analysis end as well, right? Because with advances and we apply like machine learning all the time to these, but yes, these are very exciting, but you have to define all of that upfront and be very thoughtful in answering the question. So, you know, that's really important because, you know, when SDA is evaluating evidence that is submitted, right, towards any drug approval, we actually have like standards, you know, standards of substantial, standards of effectiveness and safety. The idea is you do not want to put something in the market that is another placebo, you know. Uh, So you need to quantify what exactly is this drug's benefit for patients who plan to use it, right? What they can expect. And so, so it's very important from the regulator's point of view to put out something that they can stand by, you know, that this is what has been quantified. And so how do we quantify this uh, drug's uh, safety and effectiveness is what is what, what we're talking about, you know, without any bias. And so that's the whole idea at the end. We do not want to do analysis like, you know, in subgroups and like torture the data until it's free. And so that's the reason why we need to pre-specify that we are not going to like keep trying different hypotheses until we find something where there is some uh, statistical significance and that won't cut it because then you're not controlled for multiplicity or you're not controlled for those other biases that creep in because of this improper use of data analysis. Yeah. I think keeping good research practice is key throughout the entire process. So absolutely. Well, this has been a great discussion today. Just in summary, you know, we really covered a lot of ground here and we're exploring these topics further within our blog post. But I think the next question that comes up in session, actually, we all mentioned this was fit for purpose data. It's really key throughout this entire discussion. How do we know that our data is fit for purpose for the research question at hand? particularly when we're moving into the regulatory setting and the stakes are very high there. So we'll be diving deeper into that in our blog post and in our next discussion as well. But I just want to thank each of you for joining us today. Carla, Sash, and Laura, your insight is much appreciated and um, we're happy to have you here. Yeah, thank you, Mandy. Really appreciate it. Yeah, same here. This was exciting. Learned so much from all of you as well. Yes, yes. This was exciting. It was nice to be here. You know, it would be nice to know if our audience would love to hear more of this or, you know, if they have any suggestions on what else they would like to hear from us. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.